0: Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up a Bible to Joel chapter 2 this morning? If you want to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, if you did not bring your own, we'd love for you to follow along uh, there on a On page 761. You can find Joel 2. And thank you to Brian Critchfield for uh, for praying. As he said, he's one of our lay elders. I also want to highlight that over the last three weeks, uh, Brian wrote a three-part series that we put onto our publishing platform uh, on, on the platform Substack, and you can find that on our website, under blog or resources, uh, and really helpful three-part series, short reads about a you know the, the difference between works and faith and grace and how those all kind of theological topics really he clarified them in a way that really will equip you to live by faith uh, and and see how that relates to your life. So I would encourage you if you have not know many of you are subscribed to that uh, already, uh, but if you uh, have not been able to read that, I would encourage you to go ahead. And do so, but um, we're going to continue in our series here in the book of Joel. And to start out, I want to talk about a phrase that's actually found in the book of 1 Peter. It's a phrase I think about a lot. And the phrase is, living hope. Living hope. Peter writes to the church there. He says, praise be to God, because he has caused us to be born again with a living hope. And the reason why I think about it often is, is because it is such a gift to be able to say, you wake up each day with a living hope. And it's the difference between a, a wish and, and hope, right? A, a, you, a wish is rooted in dreams, but hope is rooted in some uh, extent, rooted in reality, right? So I can say, um, I wish the Jets would win the Super Bowl this year. It's, it's a dream. Dreams are free, all right? But, but, but I, do I have hope at this point? No. I don't, all right? I don't even believe what's happening right now, all right? But I don't, uh, but I, I wish it, but it's, I wouldn't say I, I'm, I'm hoping for it. Because hope is rooted in the reality of chances of, of something that's going to happen in the future. There's a reason to have hope. And when you can truly have a living hope, like it's not something you tuck away and hope it's true in the future, but like you wake up each day and it's the anchor, it's a, it's a hope, it, it, it enables you, and empowers you to persevere through anything in the present. That's why Peter was writing it to a church that was really struggling in the moment. And it always turns the question on us. Like, what is your living hope? What is your living hope? What is it, the hope that anchors your days? Well, last week we saw the hinge from the first half to the second half of the book of Joel. And um, I've been saying all along that this book really has two halves. It talks about and starts with the reality of present-day distress. And then it changes to the promise of future deliverance. And again, last week was the hinge. Uh, And and, and the hinge came with a call on God's people to repent and turn to the Lord. And last week, if you missed it, we we really talked about that that, that the the greatest grace upon your life is that realization that you can't save yourself. It's the greatest grace upon your life. When you get to the end of your proverbial rope and your heart is drawn to the God who is gracious and merciful, bounding in steadfast love, Joel wrote. An agonizingly beautiful moment that leads to repentance. To repent, we said, in the call to repent is a turn from self-glory, from glorifying yourself, seeking to exalt yourself, to then glorifying God, turning toward God. And so if last week we saw what repentance was, and that is a word of freedom, in this next passage in Joel, I get to show you. We get together to see the benefits of repentance and the living hope that repentance brings. What are the benefits of repentance? That's our outlook for this morning. But we're going to be in Joel chapter 2. We're picking it up where we left off. Starting in verse 18. And I'm going to read to verse 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So a simple Bible study tip that I share often, uh, that when you are reading the Bible on your own, maybe studying a passage on your own, is to observe and take note of what gets repeated in a passage. Any author of anything you're writing or you're seeing somebody else write, you will tend to, and they will tend to, repeat that which they want remembered. And the thing about this passage that's interesting is that there are several repetitions throughout it. And it starts with the phrase, one of the first phrases he repeats here is that, The Lord has done great things. The Lord has done great things. That phrase in and of itself is joy-filled. But it's especially significant when it is proclaimed in the midst of present-day distress that Israel is enduring. If you've been with us for the Joel series, that passage was like a breath of fresh air after the first three weeks. Like, that was positive. Like, it might have actually surprised you how positive Joel could be. Because we've seen the flip now. Israel has faced and is still suffering from a locust invasion and a drought and wildfires. And the land has been laid bare, the grain and the drink offerings are empty, and yet their faith is so strong in the future deliverance that they can proclaim in the past tense, the Lord has done great things. It hasn't even happened yet. And yet they're able to say that with confidence. It's that's that's living color of a living hope. That's also, we talked about the first few weeks, the importance of lament and not skipping over lament because what lament, when done, what it leads to. It is a prayer in pain that leads to a place of trust. And now we're seeing that trust start to take root. And what a reversal in this book. But but hear me, not a reversal of circumstance. They're still in it. But a reversal of future hope. Grace Church, do you want to see the Lord do great things? In your life, where are the aspects of your life where you would say, I want to see the Lord do great things? In our church, what do you want to see the world, What do you, in our world, what do you want to see the Lord do? We want to see him do great things. Especially those of us who are maybe experiencing a bad season where, again, there's your life or maybe... Sometimes even worse, there's just one part of your life that seems disconnected from everything else. It feels out of whack. It feels joyless. Do you have a future hope, a living hope, and a vision of the Lord working in that? Have you given up? Again, we see in this passage how vastly different it sounds and feels like compared to the first three weeks. And verse 18 is kind of the, the word that indicates it. He says, then. That's how the passage started. Then. That then has a big meaning behind it. Meaning, then, once repentance has occurred in his people. From the passage before, return to the Lord with your, your whole heart. Then. We begin to experience the joys that repentance brings about. We are beneficiaries of God's grace. Do you know the joys that come with repentance, that you get to live with every day? What are those benefits? And how does an affirmation of those benefits lead us to deeper trust and hope in God? That's where we're going. i got five reasons this morning. Number one, repentance brings protection. It's a benefit of repentance. It brings protection. Joel writes that the Lord is both jealous for his land and has pity on his people. He is jealous for the land and has pity on his people. Those are two aspects of God that might seem like uh, they explain two different kinds of gods, but they're not. They're together, one God, aligned. He is strong and he is compassionate. He is jealous and he has pity. And so when you hear jealous... Don't think petty, immature jealousy that we normally experience, that we normally display, but rather a rightful zeal of an all-loving and all-powerful God. When you think jealousy with God, don't think petty. Don't think power trip. Think a rightful zeal of an all-loving God. God spoke through Moses in the Ten Commandments that you shall not bow down to idols or serve them for, because, for, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Like he's jealous for you, for your good. It is good news that God is jealous for you. Because God knows that if we serve and commit our lives to anything other than God, whether or not we call it a God, we'll be left in ruin. So let's have the right picture of jealousy in our mind. Not immature, middle school boyfriend throwing a fit. All right? But a loving father who acts in the best interest of his children. And that God as father, in protection of his children, will at times discipline or allow his children to go through a hard season in order to heal and strengthen them. I think we would all agree... That a parent who fails to ever discipline, if you never disciplined your child, that's not a sign of a loving parent. That's a sign of a lazy parent. That if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. Like, And I think just to make sure we're clear, it also needs to be said that parents, you're not God, I'm not God. And we often do discipline our kids out of our own anger and sin and not out of righteous compassion. That we expect our kids to do something for us or be us or, 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 or like make much of us. And so when we're frustrated, we take it out on our kids. We have to be honest about when we discipline our kids, those are not always righteous motives. And when that does happen, it needs to be repented of. Whether it's an isolated incident or an ongoing treatment of our children that can be characterized now as abuse. I know many might look back on their childhood and they, and they, they uh, didn't have just parents who disciplined them, but parents who abused them. And so we're not God, but our God is perfect. And he's a loving God who at times will prune his children for our good. Uh, Jesus says in John 15 that every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That even his children he prunes to heal and strengthen them. Uh, So I'm reading a book right now with our our ministry intern that we introduced a few weeks ago, Matt Smith, um, called Pathways to the King by Rob Reimer, who's a professor up at Alliance. And in that book, Pathways to the King, Rob talks about the time he went to go visit a vine dresser at a vineyard. This vine dresser at a wine vineyard was 75 years old, and he'd been pruning vines every day for 50 years. Pruning is simply cutting away unhealthy or overgrown branches in order to increase future fruitfulness. So Rob asked this guy, 75-year-old man, hey, what's the most important thing I need to know about pruning? If there's ever a guy you should ask that, it's probably the guy who's been doing it for 50 years. And the man thought for a moment and said he prunes 90% of new growth because the more you prune, the more you maximize the fruit that vine will bear. And he went on because he's been pruning for 50 years. He says, The sap then flows freely to the sturdy, hardy branches that can bear maximum fruit and return the highest quality of grapes. Translation, the more you prune, the better fruit you get. So when we think about the Lord disciplining us or allowing us to go through hard seasons, hard situations, difficult relationships, like a locust invasion over all of Israel, he is pruning. And when you are in Christ, no season of your life is wasted. No difficult relationship is pointless. No circumstance pointless. In all things, be reminded, he's pruning. He's pruning. Because the more he prunes, Reimer writes, the more his presence can flow. The more he prunes in you, the more of his presence can flow through you. And so to Israel, Joel proclaims that repentance will bring the joy of protection of an all-loving, all-powerful God. And then he goes on to write that the nations will not be able to overtake you. One day he will remove all the plagues from you. He a description of driving the enemy into the western sea, into the eastern sea, and the northerner he'll drive away, and the eastern one he'll drive away. And that question remains from last week. Like, Joel, are we still talking about the locusts? Or are we talking about physical armies and nations are we talking about spiritual darkness that has dominion over them? And again, the answer, like last week, is yes. Repentance brings protection. That's number one. Let's keep going. Number two, repentance alleviates fear. What's the benefit of repenting? It alleviates fear. Twice he repeats at the top of verse 21 and verse 22, fear not Again, consider the reversal happening here. The first two chapters, Joel was telling the people to weep and to mourn. He's saying, you better lament. Look at what's happened. Look at the devastation. Look at all that has been destroyed. Lament, people of God. Wake up. What is happening to you is significant. You're acting like everything is fine, but here's, here's the important part. You're acting like everything is fine when it's not because of fear. You need to confront this. You're hiding from it and lament Because when we turn to the Lord in pain and not away from him to disguise the pain, we're reminded that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear is oftentimes, and I'd say most often, rooted in the uncertainty of the future. That that based upon your present circumstances or, or your past experiences, we fear now future happenings. And then we are pinned by that fear. Fear pins us down. It has dominion over us. And so a couple examples. You might fear the future of the economy. A lot of people talking about instability and signs of a downturn and inflation. And you remember how bad maybe a past recession was that you had to work through or or maybe lost your job in. And so that fear will have an impact on our lives and our finances, on decisions we make, and we feel pinned down by it. It's a fear of uncertainty. There's also fears from within us. There's there's something that I think on this side of COVID has been even highlighted even more, the fear of social anxiety, a fear of being in space with other people, an embodied space. And there's memories of how that's impacted you in the past or uh, you get triggered when you see a certain someone or a certain location. And and you're gonna have to be in a situation where you might have to talk and interact. and, And you fear about how you're gonna come across in a group. You're gonna fear how you are perceived, that's real. And it pins you down. It's fear of uncertainty in the future, and it controls you, it controls your decisions. And it could go on. Fear is often rooted in uncertainty of the future. And it can be crippling. And Israel, I think, had good reason at this point to seem to fear the future when they have no land and no crops devastating blow to their physical lives their spiritual lives because they can't sacrifice grain offerings and drink offerings and their livestock would go hungry they had reason to fear and so the command to fear not is an incredible one and it has a promise baked into it you don't need to fear why for the lord has done great things And perhaps you hear that and you go, okay, is that possible, though? Can we just talk reality? Is it possible to flip the switch from fear to faith in that way? Like that easily? Like I see everything around me, reasons to fear, but nope, I can have faith in God. Is it that easy? Can you really not fear before God provides? Or does that fear actually only go away after God provides? Here is where we would do well to remember that repentance which we've been talking about a lot, always has a twin sibling. Repentance has a twin. Has a twin in the Bible that is never separated from, and that twin is faith. We repent from sin, and we put our faith in God. Uh, there was a an uh, Anglican pastor in England, J.C. Ryle, in the 19th century, and he wrote a little book. It's 68 pages long in a newly published version, but it was originally written in 1878, and it's called Repentance. I don't know how many like, he sold just based on the title. I don't know how many people are buying that one, but it's an awesome little book. 68 pages, J.C. Ryle, Repentance. I'm going to throw a quote on the screen. He says, True repentance produces sorrow for sin. The heart of a repentant person is touched with deep remorse because of his past sin and transgressions. True repentance is never alone in the heart of anyone. It always has a companion, a blessed companion. It is always accompanied by active faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherever faith is, there is repentance. Wherever repentance is, there is always faith. I do not decide which comes first, whether repentance comes before faith Or faith before repentance. But I am certain enough to say that the two graces are never found separate, one from the other. Just as you cannot have the sun without light, ice without cold, fire without heat, or water without moisture, so you'll never find true faith without true repentance. Is it possible to be free from the fear before God actually provides? Or are we just left to allow fear to control us in ways until God provides? Uh, another book, another author, Trillia Newbell, our women did a study on her book called Fear and Faith. And uh, she writes in that book that to fight our fears, which is what we're all looking to do, to fight our fears, we will look at God's sovereignty and love and watch our fears dissipate as we apply God's word to our lives. The very thing we are holding on to, ironically, is the thing we need to most let go of, Newbell writes in her book. So I I am curious for you to answer in your own mind and heart that when I mention fears that could pin you down, what is it that the Spirit is bringing to your mind right now? The first step is to stop hiding from it, but to confront it with the power of God that comes from repentance and faith. You see, repentance alleviates fear. What a benefit. Let's keep going. Number three, repentance sparks joy. Repentance sparks joy. There's another phrase repeated in here. And the phrase is, be glad. At this point in the book of Joel, be glad on repeat. Verse 21, be glad and rejoice. Verse 23, again, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. And so we can see this connected to alleviated fear. That what a joy it is. To be released from the bondage of fear. It sparks joy in us. And the immediate context for Israel is the return of rain to grow the crops anew. He already drove out the locusts into the sea. Now the rains return and the land flourishes once again. He says, The green has returned. His people have returned with their whole hearts. It's a dramatic turn, an immediate renewal, one that you could hardly believe. All right, so this might be a weak illustration compared to what is happening in Joel, but this past summer, um, I don't know if it was officially designated a drought in our area, but there was definitely a lot less rain this past summer in, um, and around us. And uh, up in New Hampshire, where I went a couple times this summer up at Camp Spofford, uh, was similar, very little rain in New England. And I went two times this summer. The first week was in mid-July. Uh, that one was just Caden and I, where um, I was the speaker for the family camp that week. And the field, if you've been to Camp Spofford, you know that there's a big field in the middle of the camp, um, and it was bone dry, the driest I have ever seen it. There was no green anywhere on the field. All right, think brown baseball field. And and Caden, or softball field, all right, it's both. Uh, But Caden loved playing baseball. And so we were playing that week, it was just he and I, and it was one of those things that he hit a ground ball and it's a home run, all right? It's just gone. It's just gone and then you're going to have to go find it later because just nothing would stop it. It was just brown field. It would go and it would go. Um, late that week, uh, there was some rain for the first time. And then we go home, we come back to New Jersey for one week in between. And then our whole family goes up the next time for our normal vacation week at Camp Spofford. And Caden and I are telling the family, like, it's crazy. The field, it's brown. It's all brown. Like, it, it, you, you've never even seen it before. Uh, we pull up to Camp Spofford. There's, there was also some rain in the week in between. Guess what's not brown anymore? All right, the field is green. And Caden and I are like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. It was brown, and now it's green. And pretty much everybody else is like, like uh, cool story. All right, um, <laughs> like, I don't know why you're so excited right now. But it was, like, such a reversal and, and, and to the point where it was, like, shocking, it was just brown, and now in the span of a short period of time, just a little bit of rain, and, and it's green again. And Joel is saying now, in a short period of time, what a reversal. The Lord's given you rain. And the threshing floor shall be full of grain. That's will overflow with oil. And this is the joy of repentance that we get to experience. There is real joy in it. And it's what God does in the hearts of those who repent. You, you change inwardly. And and you might not change your life, not might transform immediately. You're still going to struggle against things of the flesh, but something's different in there, and your mourning has turned to rejoicing, and the brown field of your heart, if I can, gets rained on, poured on, and it turns green. And we experience the joy of our salvation when we remember what we've been saved from, and walk in the grace of what we've been saved into. Uh, David writes in Psalm 30 in verses 11 and 12, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. In the midst of our overly busy lives, a lot going on, family and work and hobbies and our days are full our weeks are full. If you're a believer, do you take time to be glad and rejoice? Do you love yourself enough to remember what you've been saved from? To remember how God has been faithful to us, not because of us, but because of his great mercy towards us. Like if you want something practical for this week, how many of us could benefit from dwelling upon the grace and mercy of God 5 minutes a day. See what happens. In his presence, dwelling upon the goodness that of his grace that he's bestowed upon you. Is it possible you need to be wowed by God all over again. That in this season you need to be wowed again. Repentance sparks joy. There's more. There's two more. Number four, repentance leads to restoration. In the context of the whole book of Joel, verses 25 and 26 are the clearest examples of this dramatic reversal. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Then it goes to 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. That promise has direct meaning for Israel in the moment, and it has meaning for us, although it's not the exact same. Israel has experienced lost years due to the prolonged devastation upon their land. Wave after wave after wave, and then droughts, and then wildfires. And now, upon returning to the Lord, he promises to Israel, I will restore to you the years you lost. I will make up for what has been lost. He did the same thing to Job. But Israel, your barns will be filled. Your vats will overflow. And so you often see this truth and this passage and passages like it in the Old Testament applied to us this way. Tell me if you've heard it this way. Uh, If you repent and turn to God, he will bless you abundantly and materially. And if you commit to him, he will return to it tenfold financially. You will turn to him and he will heal your diseases and the diseases of your loved ones. You turn to him and every relationship will be repaired. And quickly, it can edge, a passage like this can edge into a form of a prosperity gospel, a health and wealth promise that can be very dangerous to internalize. And so as we often do, we got to be nuanced when we come to Scripture. Um, Does God at times bless His people with material things? Yes. Is it wrong to ask for material provision or even abundant material blessings? Is it wrong to pray for that? No. But what matters most always is the motivation behind those prayers. The motivation behind those desires. And then our commitment to steward those desires if God chooses to provide it to us. To ensure that we are Christ-centered, God-glorifying, kingdom-building, and not self-centered, make much of me because of my blessing. So, is it wrong to desire material blessing? No. But is this a guarantee, is this passage a guarantee that all God's people will receive material blessing once they repent and turn to God? No. And anyway, I think making this passage only about material blessing misses the bigger point and the better hope for the church today. That it's not so much about material blessing, but it's about the lost years. God promises, I will restore your lost years when you turn to me with your whole heart. What do lost years look like for us? Uh, There's a pastor, Colin Smith, pastor from Scotland, and he turned me on and uh, tuned me into this point that really home with me that lost years are fruitless years Uh, maybe you feel like you've been in a season where you have poured yourself out in every way you've worked hard in a certain area of your life whether a business endeavor a education working towards a degree a certain hobby and a sport and it has only led to massive disappointment at this point like what has come of all that time all that effort when I felt like Lord was pointing me in that direction. What happened to all those years? Or there's lost years relationally. Perhaps with a family member. Someone passes sooner than you expected and you grief. Oh, why did I not invest my years with them better? Or a child grows up way faster than expected and they're graduating high school and you're leaving the house and you're just feeling that I wasted my years with them. I won't get those years back. Or there's coworkers that you've been side by side with for years and years and maybe even decades, and you've never spoken to about Christ, and then they leave, or you leave, and you're like, man, I wasted those years. Or a fight with a friend, or a broken relationship with a spouse, years of no real heart-to-heart speaking, and you're sitting here and you know you've grown apart, and you go, There have been lost years in my friendship, in my marriage. There's a common story, even amongst believers, that someone comes to faith, and maybe they come to faith, and they're a child, or even just even as an adult, and they made a commitment to Christ, but that faith wasn't really fed, or he or she didn't really grow. They kind of just plodded along through life. Yes, I'm a Christian. I just kind of went through life, and I'm a Christian, but I never really dig deep into it. And then they experience an awakening, and their eyes have been opened to the beauty of Christ in a way that they've never been before, and, and they celebrate that, but then they also grieve. What have I been doing all these years? why haven't I done this sooner? There are so many lost years and now I'm older and things have been so much different. And I grieve that. Uh, Colin Smith summed it up with this, quote, all Christless years are locust years. And there's real loss in that. Whatever that may look like for you of the examples I shared or something else. What hope is there for you in the moments when you're grieving the lost years. It's right here in Joel. It is the reminder that he is the God who restores his children. And when we turn to him and confess, Lord, I have spent too many years without you, or without centering you, or without your presence, without clinging to you and living in light of your promises, because I was pursuing other things or other people. Lord, that there's the lost years of the maximal fruitfulness in my life and and in the lives of the people that you've placed in my life for your glory. Lord, produce fruit in me and through me. Restore those years, Lord. That's a prayer. And the benefit of restoration is primarily spiritual more than material. So don't waste your time thinking about just the material aspects of Joel's blessing, but the spiritual aspect. Uh, Again, one more quote from Ryle's little book that he wrote this in 1878 will be on the screen. He says, riches are not necessary. Health is not necessary. Fine clothes are not necessary. Distinguished friends are not necessary. The favor of the world is not necessary. Talents and education are not necessary. Millions of people have reached heaven without these things. Thousands are reaching heaven every year without them. However, no one ever reached heaven without repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Repentance leads to restoration. We got one more. Maybe the biggest one of all. Repentance removes shame. The last phrase Joel repeats in this passage that he wants you to remember is the end of verse 26. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Shame is the first indicator that the world was fallen after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. It was the shame they experienced and then fled from God. Shame can come from external circumstances or internal. You can feel shame upon what has happened to you in the past, even those things that were outside of your control. It's tragic how often you hear it with abuse or assault victims, that they feel shame of what has happened to them outside of their control. That makes it hard for them to speak out because they feel shame. More often is shame because of these internal accusations that we put on ourselves. And our enemy loves shame. Because there's no stronger tool that Satan uses to knock Christians off balance than than shame. Uh, Kurt Thomas, he's a psychiatrist who's also a believer. He speaks a lot on shame, writes a lot on shame. And specifically he says, I've always remembered, shame disintegrates people from their faith. And if you break out that word, it's disintegrates. It separates. It's a disintegration. And when shame sets in, everything gets harder in the moment. It becomes hard to think when you are feeling shame. It becomes hard for you to move, hard for you to shift out of that feeling. And since you're disintegrated, it leads to isolation. You isolate from others around you because it's hard to move, and you isolate from God's truth because it's hard to think. And then our brains and our bodies I think naturally learn how to practice how to keep shame private and the things that cause that shame private. And all the while we drift. And we condemn ourselves and our faith is shaken. And so this promise of future deliverance. This promise, how on the day of the Lord, which Joel has been pointing to this whole time, will be the best day of your life for a lot of reasons. But maybe the first and best reason is that it is the day when shame will be put away for good. All that threatens you, all that accuses you, internal, external, it will not stick to you. And the reason we know that is because Jesus was sent by the Father to remove the shame, the shame of his children. And Jesus reversed the curse of the shame in Genesis 3, when he took that shame upon himself on the cross. And so in a world of the Lord doing great things, the Lord has done great things, the Lord coming in the flesh to declare victory over death by dying himself is at the top of the list. i want to close with an illustration that I first heard from a pastor named Herschel York that stirred something within me. Perhaps you, heard, you saw this news story, it might have been two or three weeks ago. There were a couple of activists that walked into the National Gallery in London With a can of tomato soup, these two activists, young people, walked up to a painting by Van Gogh that he painted in 1888 called Sunflowers, and they threw the entire can of tomato soup right onto the painting. The painting is an estimated value today of $83 million dollars. And then they went on to do a demonstration right there. And they went, you know, obviously the phone's rolling, hands glued to the wall, posts it right away. And that day, the response from the public was by and large horror, frustration, anger. I remember tracking it and seeing it online in real time of just how frustrated people were that these two people came in and destroyed a century-old painting with a can of soup to make a point. Later that day... The National Gallery issued a statement. Quote Earlier today, protesters threw what appears to be tomato soup over the painting. There is some minor damage to the frame, but the painting is unharmed. Turns out, maybe some of you know this, that that painting had a fine glaze of glass over the top of it. Now, when you're walking through, it's imperceptible to the human eye. And it turns out that a grand plan of a can of tomato soup couldn't harm it. The enemy hurls his accusations at you. He hurls shame and guilt and that sin will splatter our lives and it may do some damage to the frame. But the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is bigger than anything those accusations can do. And for those who are in Christ, no condemnation can stick to us. He took that shame. He paid for that shame. And he declared victory over it. And so for those in Christ the day of the Lord that is coming, that this book is continually pointing towards, on that day, if you are in Christ, you will hear proclaimed over you. There is some damage to the frame, but the painting is unharmed because Jesus protects you yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, the benefits of repentance. Oh, the opportunity we have to live with a living Hope. Let's pray. Father, we are joyful that we will never again be put to shame. We are joyful in proclaiming that the Lord has truly done great things. We are grateful for the living hope that we're able to live with because above all else, it empowers us to persevere in the here and now. It empowers us to say, as your son said, your will be done. And this life is hard, and we will navigate the ups and downs until you bring us home. But we can trust in you, and we can walk the path that you have walked. Because it ends with salvation, and it ends with restoration. Your will be done, Father. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song and prepare for the Lord's Supper.